Ooh, that was rich. Thank you, guys. Maybe we can sing that one after the sermon. Y'all can let us join in. We love that. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. If you haven't been with us or you're just like me and you forget, let me remind you we are in the midst of a sermon series on the life of Abraham that we have entitled, Finding Faith in a Fallen World. And back in Genesis chapter uh, 12, God told Abram if he would leave his country and his kindred, his family, everything that he had known, if he would leave and go to the place that God showed him, God would bless him. And he would bless those who blessed Abram. He would curse those who cursed him. He would make Abram into a great nation. And through Abram's offspring, he would bless all nations of the earth. Well, now as we get to Genesis chapter 16, it has been 10 years since God made that promise. Abram left his family, he left his country, and he's been in this place that God sent him for 10 years, and he still doesn't have a child. No offspring. We saw in Genesis 15 that, that, that Abram was, was concerned about this and brought it up to God. And there's this beautiful picture in Genesis 15 where God reassures Abram and Abram believes God and it is credited to him as righteousness. And then we took two weeks to look at the, the implications of that in the New Testament about the faith of Abraham and how that's the same faith that we're saved by as well. And we left in Genesis 15 with this beautiful picture between God and Abram. And then comes Genesis 16. You see the sermon title is what an awful story. Because it is an awful story. Why is this an awful story? Well let me just read Genesis 16 to you and, and then let's pray and then let's just jump in. We'll hold hands. We'll wade into this awful story together. Here now, what is God's word from Genesis chapter 16? Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress." And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. 
The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you assure us in your word that all scripture is breathed out by you, that it comes out from your mouth, and that all scripture is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for everything that you have us to do. And so, Father, I pray now that you would use this text to teach and rebuke and correct and to train us that you would use it to equip us, and that you'd be willing to do so even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What an awful, awful story. You may say, why is this an awful story? Well, let's just, let's just walk through it together, all right? Let's just walk through it. Verses 1 and 2. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Remember, God had promised to give Abram offspring through Sarah and through this offspring to, to bless the world. And, and Abram had done his part. He left his family, he left his home, and he went to this place and he's been there 10 years. So we read, Sarah had this female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. The Lord has prevented me. Now, that's true. It is the Lord who opens the womb and it is the Lord who closes it. We've already seen him close wombs here in the story of Abram. And so it's true what Sarah says. But there seems to be sort of a, a bitterness that God hasn't granted his promises soon enough. Instead of trusting in God, there seems to be this, this contempt that she has, that he's not working fast enough. Which leads me to warn us, be careful when you get discontented with God. Be careful when you are discontented with God's timing. Because when that happens, we are tempted to do some pretty crazy things. We're tempted to do some really ugly things. So if you feel that temptation that God's not working the way you want him to work or in the, the, the speed with which you want him to work, be careful. You're on thin ice. You're on dangerous ground because we're tempted to do some pretty crazy things. And that's what happens in this story. So Sarah says, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now let's unpack what's going on here. Sarah's saying, look, I can't have kids, so why don't you have a child with my servant, Hagar? Let's be very clear. The text uses nice words like servant, like handmaiden. 
Hagar was a slave. Sarah owned Hagar. Hagar belonged to Sarah as her property. So if Hagar has kids, they belong to Sarah also. That's why she says this. Maybe if my slave has a child, then that will serve as my offspring. Now, this kind of approach was not a new idea that Sarah had. It was common in the day. It was legal. If you read the different law codes, Hammurabi's code, you may be familiar with from the second millennium BC, and others had this kind of a a situation outlined that you could do this. And so it was contemplated, it was a common practice, it was legal, it was culturally acceptable. And so Hagar becomes a secondary wife to Abram, and her kids that she bears would be Sarah's kids. And then we see that Abram, we're just told kind of in passing, right there at the end of verse 2, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now to the careful reader... That lets us know something's about to go badly wrong. If you haven't figured it out already, something's going to go wrong. And how do we know that? Well, if you read in Genesis 3 and verse 17, the only other time this phrase has been used in the text so far is when God is pronouncing a punishment on Adam. And he says, because you hearkened to the voice of your wife and ate the forbidden fruit, then you will have this consequence. And so this same phrase, because you listen, he listened to the voice of his wife, or he hearkened to her voice, it's reminding us of the fall. It's it's setting us to say, hey, there's about to be a fall that takes place. Something bad's going to happen. Now let me be clear, husbands. The Bible's not saying never to listen to your wife, okay? That is not what this is saying. In fact, if you read in Genesis 21, God specifically says, listen to Sarah and do what she says, okay? So you can read that in Genesis 21. What's being condemned is when your wife is telling you to do something that is not what God said to do, that is against what God said to do, i.e. eat the fruit that he said not to eat, i.e. have children with someone other than your wife when God had promised to bless them through Sarah, their own offspring through their own body, then you should not listen to your spouse. And that goes both ways for husbands and wives. But we know something ominous is going to happen because Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, which was different from the voice of God. And sure enough, it doesn't turn out well. Look at verses 3 and 4. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. What does that mean? She looked with contempt on her. I don't know. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if somehow Sarah lost status in the community, sort of like Hagar saying, hey, you're not woman enough. I'm the only one that can provide a child for your husband. Before this happened, we don't know if the infertility problem was with Abram or with Sarah for sure, right? But now that we know it's Sarah, you're the one that can't have kids because Abraham has produced offspring with, with Hagar. 
So maybe Sarah has lost status in the community. Maybe Hagar has gained status in the community, right? She's carrying Abraham's child, the patriarch, the head of the household. And so she can't go back to just being a menial slave. Her status in the community, I would imagine it's probably a combination of the two, but it's a horrible situation. Just imagine the situation If you're Sarah, the intimacy that has been shared between your husband and your slave. And now she is pregnant, providing a child which you were not able to do. Perhaps Abram's even a little bit excited. Who wouldn't be that they're going to have a child? And it's crushing to Sarah. It's hurtful. Evidently, this was a frequent problem because those law codes that I told you about actually had provisions for if the handmaid begins to act differently, here are your options of what you can do. So evidently, this was a thing that happened all the time. We shouldn't be surprised by it. How could humans not respond this way? And Sarah is hurt, and she's angry, and she's humiliated. And so she comes in verse 5, and she says to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. Well, that's a little unfair. I mean, it was your idea, right? I was just kind of doing what you said to do. Abram shouldn't have done it. But it's unfair for her to say, look, all this is on you, right, when it was her idea. She's angry. She's hurt. She's jealous. She's hurting. And you can tell because of the the graphic language that she uses. She says, may this wrong be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And the translators are being nice, right, because it's Sunday and this is the Bible and we're all dressed up and we don't want to say anything that is untoward in any way literally she says i placed my servant in your lap it's a euphemism for the genital area she is being very graphic she is being pointedly sexual she is saying i put my servant between your legs and she's angry and she's hurting and she's using graphic language Because she's humiliated. We respond that way, don't we? We say things that are unfair that we don't mean when we're hurt and when we're angry and when we're jealous. And so how does Abram, this great paragon of faith that we've seen for the last few weeks that we're supposed to have faith like Abraham, he's been pointed to as somebody that we should emulate. What does he do? Verse 6. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. She's your slave. Take care of it. (laughs) Really? That's your answer? That's your solution to this? It's an awful story. Then Sarah, not to be outdone by, by Abram's cruelty, she 
dealt harshly with Hagar. She mistreated her. She abused her. Your translation may have any of those words. It's the same language. The original audience receiving this just came out of slavery in Egypt. It's the same language that is used in Exodus of how the Egyptians treated the Israelites when they said you have to make more bricks with less straw, that they dealt bitterly with them, that they abused them, that they treated them wrongly. It's an awful story. Why do we say this is an awful story? Well, it seems to condone slavery. It demeans women. We see this exploitation, this oppression, this injustice. Sarah argues for it and then blame shifts just like the fall. Abram's fine with it. The heroes here are awful. What an awful story. What do we do with a story like this? What do we do with the Bible when it contains awful stories like this? When I talk to people and have talked to folks in the last few months, I can think of two in particular, that look at stories like this and they say, this is why I can't accept the Bible. This is why I can't accept any religion that is rooted in this book. Because it does seem to condone slavery. It does seem to demean women. There is exploitation and oppression and injustice perpetrated by the heroes of the book. The ones that we're supposed to be like. What do we do with the Bible when it contains stories like this? Well, we'll slow down. Let's understand what the message of the Bible truly is. Before we begin to reject this book, let's remember what it's saying. Let's really listen to it and not just react to what I will admit is an awful situation. Many of us think that this book is a book of heroes that we're supposed to emulate. It's a bunch of things we're supposed to do, and if we do these good things, then God will bless us. We say things like, be like Abraham, and then God will bless you too, just like he blessed Abraham. Well, that's not the purpose or the message of this book. And I can't think of a better place that outlines the true message of this book than the Jesus Storybook Bible. Many of you have it in your home, that first chapter. Lisa and I were having a conversation with someone who was making this argument. She was like, I really just want to give them the Jesus Storybook Bible, but I'm afraid they'll be offended by that. Because they're like a grown-up person, and I'm giving them a book that's like for five-year-olds. But that's the best explanation I know. I said, me too. So here it is. Don't be offended. It's just the best explanation we know. It reads in the first chapter, Now some people think... The Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. And the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible is not mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's mainly about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. And look, they even have a little representation of Abraham right there, the guy we're looking at, right? The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible are not heroes at all. 
They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible is not a book of rules nor a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, leaves everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Yes! Amen and amen. Simple enough for a five-year-old to understand that's the purpose of this book. This book, the Bible, is not a book of heroes that we're supposed to copy. There's only one hero in this book, and that's God, who loves and uses and reaches out to broken and messed up people. This book is a record of the grace and the love of God for people who do not deserve it. People who don't even seek it. People who continually resist it. People who fail to appreciate it even after they've been saved by it. Look at Genesis 15. He just exercised faith in God. That the New Testament tells us saved him. And now right after that, he doesn't appreciate the grace and the goodness that saved him. The Bible is teaching us that the very best of humans are awful. That we're horribly flawed. We can't break out of the brokenness of our own culture. We can't rise above our blind spots of the times we live in. We can't escape our own selfishness of our own hearts. Yet, God keeps moving towards us. He keeps speaking to us. He keeps helping us. He keeps saving us. He keeps rescuing us. He keeps his promises to us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. That's the whole point of grace. We define grace as unmerited favor. What does that mean? It means we don't deserve any of the goodness of God. That we're awful people like the ones in this story. And that it's God's grace and his mercy that moves towards us, that changes us, that transforms us, that blesses us, even when we don't deserve it. That's the good news of this book. So listen, when you talk to people and they point out how bad folks are, don't, we don't run from that. We say, yes, they're awful, they're terrible, and, and so am I, and so are you in your heart, if you'll admit it. That the only hero is God. And that this book is mainly not about you and what you should be doing, but it's mainly about God and what he has done. And if that's true, then the behavior of Abram and Sarah should not shock us here. What should shock us is God in mercy and grace who continues to move toward people who are so broken and messed up, continues to love us and bless us. Now, you may look at this story and say, well, God doesn't sound too good to me. Verse 9, he tells her to return and submit 
to this woman who's been abusing her. And yes, I understand. We don't want to give counsel to someone that they should return to abuse. I understand that. But who's giving the advice and why are they giving it? Look at verse 10. If you keep reading, God's giving the advice. And he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they can be numbered beyond multitude. He's telling her to to go back because he wants to give her a great blessing. And then in going back, God's going to protect her and she is going to have a son. You see, if Hagar does not go back, if she doesn't go back, here's a pregnant woman in in basically a desert. She's probably not going to last very long. She's not going to survive. And if somehow, miraculously, she does survive, she's always going to be looking over her shoulder. She's a runaway slave. She's never going to be truly free. And perhaps a woman who's vulnerable may be enslaved again if she's out there by herself. So God does tell her to go back, but he protects her in that situation. You can read at the end of the chapter that she does indeed have a son. And that Abram names him Ishmael. She probably told the story of what happened when she was in the desert and what caused her to come back. That God protects her. And ultimately, God gives her what she wants most. Her freedom. Because when you get to Genesis 21... And Abraham and Sarah, their names get changed. Abraham and Sarah have a child of their own. And they send Hagar and Ishmael away. Another cruel act of exposure to the elements. But she's free. And she is granted the freedom. She's she's freed. She's emancipated. They let her go. And God again provides for her and keeps her safe in the wilderness. Listen to me. Sometimes God wants to bless us, but it involves our walking through some really difficult things. And and we can't see how he's going to bless us. We don't understand what he's preparing us for. We don't understand why. But God does work that way. We see it here in the text. Can you live with a God like that? A God who often uses difficult things to lead us to his blessing. Will you trust him in the difficult times? We love to quote Romans 8, 20. God's using all things for my good. (laughs) The all things stink sometimes. Are we going to stick with God even during the all things? You know, none of us is the author of our own story. And I think each of us would write the story differently if we were the author. What is it that causes us to try to be the author of our own story? What causes us to act like these awful folks in this story? If you're following along in your sermon notes, I'm turning the corner to that third question there. Why do we try to be the author of our own story? What causes us to act like that? And I think we see the answer here in Sarah and in Abram. 
Let's look at it. Let's think about it together. Sarah is desperate. Why? Because she can't have kids. And she lives in a culture where the group is more important than the individual. So families would choose who it is that you would marry based on what's best for the family. That's not your decision individually. We're going to decide as a family. And that culture said to women, if you can't have kids, then you are nothing. That was the mindset of this culture. And we can look back at that culture and say, oh, that's a terrible culture. And there are a lot of things that are wrong with that. But listen to me. Every culture has a definition of what gives us worth. Even in our more individualistic culture, we still define what it is that gives someone significance or value or or makes them matter. We may not be in a traditional culture where the group comes above the individual. We live in a more individualistic culture. A traditional culture would say you have to have kids or you're nothing. That's how you had worth or significance. But now in our very individualistic culture, we say, hey, you're free to marry anyone you want. We tell ourselves that, don't we? But that's a lie. Isn't it? Yes, it's a lie. The truth is, you can marry anyone that you can attract. That's the truth. And so our culture says, if you're going to attract somebody, you better be good looking. You better be working out. You better be funny. You better be smart. You better be successful. You better have money or else you're nothing. You see, every culture has its definition of what gives us worth. And we get desperate if we don't achieve that thing. So for Sarah, when it came to trusting God, to waiting on God to keep his promises, or having a baby, what did she choose? Waiting on God or having a baby now? Having a baby now. And when your culture says you have to have this thing or you're nothing, we take that thing and we make it the most important thing and we, our value and our significance gets caught up in that thing. It is our salvation. It becomes our God. That's what happened to Sarah. And that's what happens to us. Different culture, same process. And the irony is this. That Sarah is just as much of a slave as Hagar is. Hagar's outwardly a slave. Sarah's inwardly a slave to what she thinks she has to have in order to have value and worth. Oh, friend. What enslaves you? What is it that your culture is telling you that you have to have or else you are nothing? What is it that you believe that you have to have to have significance or to convince other people or even to convince yourself that you have value and worth? Listen to me. You are a slave to that thing until you are convinced that you have value and worth and can be loved regardless if you ever achieve that thing. That's how we become like these folks. We're influenced by our culture in that way. We begin to take matters into our own hands. We see it with Sarah. What about with Abram? It's pretty easy to see with him, isn't it? 
The New Testament tells us these two women represent two different ways to achieve blessing. That if Abram waits for Sarah to conceive, he's going to have to wait. And he's going to have to hope. And he's going to have to cry out to God in prayer. And he's going to have to look forward to receiving it as a gift. And when it happens, it'll be a complete miracle. Because Sarah has not been able to have kids for decades. But if Abram looks to Hagar as the solution, that's something Abram has the human ability to do. So Hagar represents the way of works, and Sarah is the way of grace. Now you may hear me make this application and say, wow, that's really allegorical. That's kind of unusual to make that kind of an application. And I totally agree with you. I would never make that application except for the fact that Galatians 4 and verse 24 says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. That's literally what it says. Galatians 4 verse 24, look at it later. That one is a way of, of works and the other is a way of blessing. That Hagar is a way of getting blessing through our own effort, through our own achievement. But Sarah is a way of getting blessing through waiting on God and trusting in God. That's where we live every day, waiting on the promises of God. Manufacturing it ourselves or crying out to God and looking to him and waiting to receive it by faith through his grace. It's the same thing Adam preached last week in that excellent sermon that he preached from Galatians. So I ask you, Will you work and strive to be blessed through your own effort, your own achievement? Or will you work and strive to be blessed by waiting on God and trusting on God? Listen, both of them involve a lot of work. It's hard to wait and to cry out to God in prayer. But that's the way that's much more effective because he's actually going to accomplish his purposes. And it's a whole lot less messy. You see, Abram tried to get God's blessing through his own effort, and it made things worse. And that's the basis of this inner enslavement that we believe we have to have this thing to have value and meaning. And then we trust in our own efforts to get that blessing, and we mess things up instead of waiting on God. That's how this happens. So how do you escape it? How do we avoid being people like these awful folks? If you're with me on Wednesday night, you're in that men's study, we're asking the question, how does grace show up on the scene? Please, where's the grace and the mercy? How is it showing up in this situation? Oh, there's a hero here. It's not Hagar, it's not Abram and Sarah, it's the angel of the Lord. You see the angel of the Lord there beginning in verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Now let me say a word about angels. Angels show up a lot of places in the Bible, right? Angels minister. They're ministering spirits. They come. There's an angel that comes to Mary and says, hey, you're going to have a son, and that's Jesus. There's an angel that lets Peter out of the jail when he gets in jail in, in the book of Acts. John, in, that, uh, in Revelation, as he gets that glimpse of him, he sees lots of angels. There are a lot of angels. 
But those are just angels. This is, what does it say? The angel of the Lord. And it says that four times. This is a distinct angel, a different one. The angel of the Lord. And those other angels always say they're not God. They show up, people freak out. They say, don't be afraid. And then they say what the message is from God. They always say, God has this message for you and I'm just a messenger. Remember in Revelation, John sees one of these angels and just bows. And he says, don't worship me. I'm a created being like you. I'm just a messenger from God. This angel doesn't do that. In verse 10, he talks like he's God. The angel of the Lord, verse 10, said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. A similar blessing that God had promised to Abram, he's making this a similar promise, but the angel of the Lord's making the promise like he's God. And in verse 13, when Hagar refers to him as the Lord and God, she's not corrected. So this angel of the Lord is God. But now that's confusing and creates all sorts of conundrums. Because when God has shown up so far in the scripture, it has not been a pretty sight, right? Remember in Genesis 15, darkness, dread falls over. God's in this fire and this smoke that goes through those animals that have been cut in half. The original audience has just come out of Egypt and they've seen God descend on Mount Sinai again in fire and smoke and it's scary and they say, we don't want to hear his voice anymore. Moses, you go talk to him and come back and tell us what he said. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, right? And he fills the temple. And when Isaiah sees him, he says, woe is me. I'm a man with unclean lips amongst a people. I'm undone because my eyes have seen the Lord. It's usually scary when we see God. But here there's no smoke, there's no fire, there's no dread. It's pretty ordinary. In verse 8, they just have a conversation. He says, Hagar, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing my mistress, Sarah. He's approachable. How can that be? This angel of the Lord is Jesus, God in the flesh, who shows up on the scene. The one who makes God approachable. It's in Jesus that the glory of God can come near without overwhelming us or killing us. He can come near to us in grace. And do you see the grace here? Hagar doesn't deserve his help. She's looked at Sarah with contempt. Abram sure doesn't deserve to be the father of many nations. Sarah doesn't deserve to have a child. Even Ishmael's going to be a wild donkey of a man, hardly a ringing endorsement. None of these folks deserve anything from God. But in his grace, through the work of Jesus, God comes near without consuming us. God helps us. God preserves us. God gives us direction. God blesses us again and again and again. And how does that happen? It happens because Jesus took the punishment we deserve so that we gain the blessing that only Jesus deserves. Listen, I know I've been talking for a while. I had last week off, and so I was wound up. I had two sermons in me, right? We had that worship today when you hear, if you can't preach after that, something's wrong with you. But here's the bottom line. Listen to me. You will always 
be a slave to your own culture or to the identity your culture gives you or to whatever you think you have to be until you are convinced of God's love for you just because you're you, just because you're his creation, just because you're made in his image, not based on your performance, but only love because of his grace. The perfect life of Jesus and his sacrificial death for you once and for all proves God's love for you. And it's only when we see God's love for us that we will not be a slave to our own culture. It's only when we see that that we have the inner freedom and the inner strength to be who God made us to be. It's only when we can rest in his love that we stop this striving This oppressing other people to get what we think we have to have in order to be significant. Because we've got all we need in the love of God for us expressed in the person and work of Christ Jesus. So I don't need anything from you. And so for the first time we can move toward people and really love them without expecting anything of them. Don't you want that kind of freedom? I call you. Come to God through Christ Jesus. Let's pray and ask him to help us to do that. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is an awful story. And I feel even worse when I realize it's a reflection of my own awful heart. I strive to make things right in my own power, my own intelligence, and my own strength. I think I know the best thing to do better than you do. I think I know the best timing for things better than you. Lord, forgive us. And I just pray that you would help us to see your love for us. And that your voice would be bigger for us than any other voice. So we might experience that freedom that only you can give. That if you're our treasure, we don't need anything else. And we're able to walk in your ways and to love other people without demanding things of them. Oh, Lord, please come and do that in our hearts. Come do that in our church. And I ask that you do it for your glory, for all of our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.